All right. So, uh, pastors, page 12. Closely connected to the teaching ministry is the shepherding or pastoral ministry of the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Old Testament and New, uh, it is the dominant glue that holds the, uh, the assembly together. And uh, I just put on footnote there, no other metaphor is more often is used more often in the Bible concerning leadership than that of pastoral care. And so I agree that that uh, that, that uh, you know the emphasis on the pastor and the modern church is just completely off because the pastor does everything and uh, and um, but I also agree that the pastoral ministry is far more emphasized as far as Scripture as, the, as a whole, the prophetical writings, and in the epistles, not only the subject of it, but the general feel of and purpose behind the epistles themselves are essentially pastoral and care, shepherding and care. And that really it's kind of, the fivefold ministry is held together by the the common aspect of all five of the ministries of the Holy Spirit uh, is pa- a pastoral heart. Um, so the Greek word is poimain, uh, which is uh, the word for for uh, pastor, for herdsman, or shepherd which is pulled uh, from the Old Testament, like uh, Ezekiel 34. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, ah, shepherds of Israel, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not uh, shepherds feed the sheep? My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over the mountains on every high hill. On every high hill, my sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth. And then he says, I'll, I'll bring them back and give them a, a true shepherd in the son of David. Psalm 78, he chose David, a servant out from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people, Jacob. And so there's a reason the Lord, even in David's ministry, to establish him. And this is like you related to the sheep. And you get nothing out of the sheep, you know, or you shouldn't. But uh, you relate to them for the care of them. Likewise, with Israel as a whole, this is how you lead. He shepherded them with integrity of heart. Jeremiah 23, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastor. I will gather the remnant of my flock. I'll set shepherds over them who will care for them, a righteous branch who will uh, reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the land. And so then he says to uh, uh, Peter after he restores him three times, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Just the idea of, uh, yeah. B, the pastoral ministry of the Holy Spirit functions in a general way, caring for and leading the saints in righteousness and holiness in preparation for the age to come. It requires a combination of diligence and compassion feeding people in due seasons according to, their need, according to their needs in the situation. And so you never see Jesus uh, relate to everybody in a uniform way. He doesn't have a ministry pattern. He relates according to the day of the Lord and where people are at in their understanding of it, in their walking and conformity to it, etc., and, so, and their brokenness, and uh, etc. So he relates differently to a broken prostitute or tax collector than he does to a self-righteous Pharisee, according to the light that each of them have concerning the judgment that they will uh, endure. So who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will go well with them when their master returns. 1 Corinthians 3, an example of Paul uh, relating in a pastoral way, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you are not ready for it. And even now you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. 
And uh, and then like uh, Hebrews 6, that is a oh, sad little person. <laughs> it's funny. So like Hebrews 6, likewise, you should have been teachers by now, but you're still infants uh, drinking milk instead of the meat of the word. And uh, so this gives context for Matthew 9, where he Jesus sees the, crowd, sees the crowds of Israel and just hearkening back to the prophetical writings, says they're like sheep harassed and helpless. They don't have leaders that direct them and consistently set before them the day of the Lord and encourage them in righteousness of heart. C, other designations such as elder, the Greek word presbytos, uh, presbyteros, overseer, the Greek word episkopos, from which we get the episcopate and bishop, and deacon, diakonos, all refer essentially to the same pastoral shepherding type ministry within the body. So I didn't work through those other uh, passages. You guys can do that. Um, there's lots of people that really try to distinguish out between all of them. And I just don't think there's really that much distinction to be made between them. They're just leaders over groups uh, uh, over the body in different areas and, and forms. And they all are there for the same purpose. And they get used interchangeably throughout uh, throughout the scriptures. Like First Peter 5 is an example. To the elders... To the presbyteros among you, I appeal as a fellow elder, a witness of Christ's sufferings, and one who will also share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds, the poimeno, of God's flock that is under, or be pastors as an elder, as a presbyter. Be a pastor of God's flock that's under your care, serving as overseers, serving as bishops. So right there you get the elder, the pastor, and the bishop all doing the same thing. And the point is, is they're functioning as a witness to to the suffering before the glory. They function as a witness to the cross and the glory to be revealed, shepherding people and leading them. And so you must, uh, not because you must in your pastoring, but because you're willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over to those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So not the power and money bit in this age. Always comes down to those. And uh, and when the chief shepherd, the archipoimen, the, you know, the one who is the example to us, when he appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Therefore, summary, the whole ministry of the Holy Spirit, including the gifts distributed to men, are for building up the body meant to establish the church in maturity so they will function with one accord unto its destiny in the coming kingdom. So like Ephesians 4, uh, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, just to rehearse, concerning the coming kingdom and your calling, Walk in unity and faith with that. Walk according to the grace that's given to you, distributed according to these different uh, offices. So you have, again, your diagram, your uh, fivefold ministry. It's like a big bullseye. of this age to walk faithfully in the gifts of the Holy Spirit as a witness of the age to come. Rejoicing always. Diagram. All right, so... Not that last statement. If the motives New Shepherd. It's just kind of, I was thinking, I don't know if you've ever heard about when people are always asking him to be his kind of apostolic covering, because he's basically got a parachurch, quote, ministry where he just travels, and and he's always got people who want to 
be his apostolic covering and have him submit to their, you know, apostolic network, whatever. And, and Jason's like, listen, throughout the scriptures, uh, if you want to people, how do you say it? He says, if you want to be my father and apostolic covering, then you need to function like father's function. And so here's my bills. If you want to be my apostolic covering, then you can pay my bills because that's what fathers do with their kids. And so, I don't know why. Whatever. It's just a, you get the point. All right. I don't want to have a chip on my shoulder. I really don't. I just, you know, being in that swirl, you uh, you grow weary of it. So, the false ministries of the false servants. And I don't, I really uh, don't address the subject just because I have a chip on my shoulder. But I address the subject because it's so, it's so intense throughout the epistles and it's so heavily emphasized. And it's almost never emphasized in the whole discussion about the fivefold ministry for a reason. And I don't want to say why that reason is. I think it's obvious to everyone, but it's heavily emphasized in the scriptures for a reason. And so I'm going to emphasize it to you so that when the Lord gifts you and calls you in these different areas, you have kind of a fear of the Lord and trembling aspect to it. So the Bible warns against those who, quote, disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, those who are false apostles, false prophets, False teachers, these are false brothers who and ungodly men who have the spirit of Antichrist. And so I just put a, a number of references, which is by no means all of them, but just to emphasize the point, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, the fivefold ministry has a counterfeit fivefold ministry. Those who are uh, false apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists they preach a false gospel and false pastors they feed on the sheep rather than caring for the sheep Um, but what what's the root cause of these and my point is is that the root cause is simply pride it's not some complex mystery about what makes a person true or false and and not you're not a false apostle or prophet if you do or don't have the the anointing or if you do or don't have all the gifts or you do don't whatever what makes a man or what makes any man or woman regardless of what gift they walk in or ministry they walk in false is common and it's rooted obviously in pride in the tree of knowledge and good and evil it's just what makes a human being false or not is the attitude of superiority concerning the, the knowledge of good and evil, and then what you do in relation with that attitude of superiority. Because we all have what we've inherited from our forefather. The question is, how do we, how do we deal with that? And then how do we relate to others in the midst of our struggle with our pride? Because what every man, if he's not hindered in kindness from the Lord which all men receive the kindness of the Lord in hindering them and and calling them to repentance. But every man, if he had no hindrance, I mean, you hear people say, you know, if we had the situation, we would probably walk out like Hitler too. And it's really true that if we had no gift of the Holy Spirit, if we had no scriptures, if God didn't speak to any human being and he let them unhindered without death and struggle and suffering and toil walk according to their pride and wickedness, it would be Hitler times a million forever and ever. Because the way we are, because of the attitude of superiority, we take the image of God that has been broken and we create our own image of superiority and we conform, we seek to conform everybody else to our own image of superiority right and so it's when you get around like really 
prideful people, their entire life is conforming others to themselves. And you got to listen to my music and you got to eat what I eat. And this is awesome. And you know what I mean? And you got to dress like I dress and you got to do this like I do. And you got to believe this and this has to be cool. And that's not cool. And everything is developing. It just happens in a hundred different areas stretched all across the globe at every level of society. It's just the way we are like that. And so the point is, is that God and our brokenness of image wants to conform our brokenness to his own righteousness by the spirit inwardly now and then conform to in our body in the age to come. But the wicked in their pride and broken image, want to conform all of humanity not to the image of God, as in the beginning and will be in the end, but the image of themselves. I know that seems kind of abstract, but it's just, it's how we're designed and wired and it's what we do. Like, it's not just that man wants to play risk at a, you know, in real life and man wants to dominate the world and own everything. Man wants to dominate everything, including human beings in every way and conform them to his own likeness. I mean, it's not abstract. It really is the truth of every human being. It's what what's inside of us and it's what we're all dealing with. And so we're all in this room one step away from giving into that old man that's still within us and walking into falseness in our area of gifting. And so there's no like predetermined, you know, by revelation and gnosis and knowledge that we will be false or whatever. It's, it's, it's a matter of how we walk in relation to the, the fallenness that we are and how we relate to others in it. So, um, page 16, point D. In other words, man seeks to dominate all men and disciple them unto himself rather than uh, discipling men under the Lord. This basic uh, drive of the flesh of man, which leads many of the servants of God astray, rather than discipling men unto God in fear of the day of the Lord, men disciple others, people disciple uh, uh, men unto themselves to fulfill all the wicked motives of the human heart. Pride, greed, reputation, insecurity, fear, malice, immorality, etc., And it really is, I mean, it seems abstract because it takes a few steps to go from pride to immorality. And, uh, but when you get in an abusive situation, like, you know, uh, I'm just thinking of like cult situations where there's intense, like, uh, fear and insecurity and immorality the reason all of that is happening is because of the pride and control of the leaders to conform everybody to their own likeness. And even the immorality is a means of control and domination. And it, I mean, the whole thing, like, we're just twisted like that. It's the, I mean, it's just the truth inside of all of us is that reality to, to uh, dominate and control others because we think we are it, whatever that is. And so um, this inevitably, inevitably results in the abuse of God's people rather than for their care. So Matthew 24, which we've, We've read this. Who then is the faithful and wise servant uh, whom his master sets over him? So in context to the whole of Matthew 24, talking about the end of the age, what is the, this is what Jesus is trying to pull a response and outcome from. So in context to the end of the age and the escalation of wickedness filling the whole earth, 
there's going to be false prophets, true prophets, persecution, etc. And he, at the end of it, he says, this is your takeaway point. Watch and pray so that, and then he gives the parable, you're a wise servant, not a wicked servant, in the midst of the escalation of wickedness. And so the whole context of what he's emphasizing in Matthew 24 is true, uh, true servants of the Lord that endure to the end and then false servants of the Lord. So you get kind of in that parable at the end of Matthew 24 an explanation of what it means when many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And the love of of most will grow cold. And so, who then is the wise servant set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? But if that wicked servant, referencing the false prophets, says to himself, My master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servant and eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he doesn't expect him an hour and cut him to pieces with the hypocrites. So this charge of God against the uh, this was the charge of God against the false prophets in the Old Testament, who led the house of Israel astray rather than focusing their attention on obedience to God and fear of the day of the Lord. So um, what's this one? Jeremiah twenty three. So you have two main passages. Jeremiah twenty three and Ezekiel thirteen are the two main false prophets passages in the prophetical writings that really give context for the idea of uh, false prophets. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord, for the land is full of adulterers because of the curse uh, the land mourns and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil, their might is not right. Or like the NIV says, they use their power for unjust gain. Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I've found their evil, declares the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own way, they say no disaster shall come upon you. And his point is not, uh, his point in this context is not the uh, exile of Israel, because that's generally how it gets interpreted. Clearly, the context is the storm of the Lord that will destroy the wicked that the exile of Israel was a picture of. And so the point is, is the priests and the prophets are not telling the people, listen, this, this, and this is fuel for the day of the Lord. And you need to, re- you need to produce fruit in keeping with your repentance and your fear of the day of the Lord. You need to walk out your salvation with fear and trembling. You see what I'm saying? And so what they're saying, what the priests and the prophets are saying is just like, I mean, just rife through the church today, adultery, greed, you know, people in the church doing all sorts of just wicked business activity and all of the, it all just continues to go on and the pastors, whether they say it with words or they just let it continue to happen and all the divorce and immorality in the church and they just let it continue to happen, what they're saying is, it's going to go well with you. When you stand before the Lord, there's not going to be disaster that's come upon you with all sorts of doctrines of the grace of God and, and false grace. Like, and so that's what's, I mean, it's the exact same uh, scenario He says, no disaster shall come upon you. Behold, the storm of the Lord, wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people. They would have turned them away from their evil way, from from the evil of their deeds. And the point of what's happening at this time is that the priests and the prophets are not servants of God discipling the people of Israel unto the Lord in the day of the Lord. The reason they're doing that is because they're discipling also um, Ezekiel 13. Where was it? 
there's the just comes to mind uh Hosea four where he says uh where he says uh they're swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery, they break all bonds, bloodshed follows bloodshed, and so you have all of that I mean our society is just rife with swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery, which Jesus addresses these are the things that lead to the looks at the heart, you know what I'm saying? The breaking of all bounds, and so you have no uh, keeping of word or idea of covenant with our within our society. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. My contention is with you, O priest, the people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And he says, and it shall be like people, like priests. I'll punish them for their ways and their evil deeds. And so you have the same idea that the the mechanics behind why the people live the way they do is because the leaders are discipling them unto themselves. So, Ezekiel 13, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel uh, who are now prophesying. And I'm filling in a little bit, obviously, because these are the passages that get quoted in the New Testament and then get expounded on later on. So, I understand that I'm... Um, Filling in the dots a little. Uh, Son of man, prophesy against the prophets of Israel who are now prophesying. Your prophets, O Israel, are like jackals among ruins. You have not gone up to the breaks in the wall to repair it for the house of Israel so that it will stand firm in the battle on the day of the Lord. So Paul pulls from this in in Ephesians 6, where in everything, our battle isn't with flesh and blood. It's against principalities that are leading us into unrighteousness and disbelief concerning the day of the Lord. Therefore, stand firm in your faith. And he, he's, Ezekiel's making the analogy of you as leaders don't see the weakness in the people of Israel and go in and strengthen that weakness and address that weakness and brokenness. Uh, leading people to repentance concerning their ways in light of the day of the Lord. And so then he says, because they lead my people astray, saying peace when there is no peace, and because when a flimsy wall is built, they cover it with whitewash. Therefore, tell those who cover it with whitewash that it's going to fall. In my wrath, I will unleash a violent wind, and in my anger, hailstorms, hailstones and torrents of rain will fall with destructive fury. I will tear down the wall you have covered with whitewash and will level it to the ground so that its foundation will be laid bare. When it falls, you'll be destroyed in it and you will know that I am the Lord. And so you get the, I mean, this is so intense when Paul looks at the high priest, not knowing he's the high priest and says, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. And so, I mean, this is what the priest is pulling to mind is this analogy that the Lord says in Ezekiel 13 and and Paul saying the day of the Lord is upon you and you will be destroyed because this is how you are a false prophet and and this is how the Lord relates to him um so the two false prophets I set this up because the sermon on the mount is so intense in how it unfolds the two false prophets the two main false prophets passages in which you have entire to the issue of true and false prophets, both relate the end to the analogy of the storm of the Lord coming upon the false false prophets. Okay, the storm of the Lord upon the false prophets who who were not shepherding the house of Israel and the foundation will be laid bare to that house that the false prophets are building. Okay, does that make sense? The two passages. And then the two other passages, which I want to skip down and read before we hit Matthew 7 at the bottom of the page there. The conspiracy of her prophets, Ezekiel 22, the conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured human lives. They have taken pleasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey, circle wolves, like above in Ezekiel 13, jackals. 
Wolves tearing the prey, shedding blood, destroying lives to get dishonest gain because their hope is in this age rather than the age to come. And her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and and divining lies for them, saying, Thus says the Lord God when the Lord has not spoken. So the whitewash in Matthew 23 is from those two passages in Ezekiel 13 and 22. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice. And then Zephaniah 3, Woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. Her officials are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. They, they lurk in the darkness and they devour things through the night and dawn of the day and so that's what he's saying your leaders are like evening wolves who are devouring israel in the midst in the night and by the day the whole house of israel will be destroyed when the dawn breaks it's so intense her prophets are arrogant they're treacherous they're treacherous men her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law which is this is what you know paul uh, jesus is expounding on the uh, the teachers of the law doing violence to the law, and this will be their end. So Matthew 7, this is clearly the context for the whole passage, and it flows one thought right to the other. I mean, the whole thing of, the, of Matthew 5 through 7 does, but the ending is so intense, because if you don't have these passages in mind, you don't get the intensity with which all of the nonverbal communication that's happening in the situation as Jesus is functioning as shepherd and leader over the people of Israel in contrast to the teachers of the law and the, and the Pharisees that are listening to him. Really intense. So he says, small is the gate and narrow is the road, right? Choose the narrow gate. Small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life and only a few find it. He says, watch out for the false prophets on your narrow path unto entrance into life. Look out for the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. And so these are the passages that he's pulling from. I mean, he's not like making up this by revelation, this idea of true and false prophets in the spiritualized kingdom kind of thing. Like he's just pulling straight from the prophets teaching the law as it ought to be taught. And so he says, they're ferocious wolves inwardly. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Because a thorn bush can't produce grapes. Trees produce fruit, produce good fruit if it's a good tree. And the fruit he's referencing is the fruit of the false prophets who use and shepherd the people for their own gain. And that's why it always, that's why the core of the Sermon on the Mount is he's pressing the idea of of not chasing after money and not serving money. Because that's what happens when you live for this age and you live your life to serve and get money, you always relate to, to other people as an object to get money. And you always end up oppressing them and exploiting them in every situation. So that's why all the prophetical writings are always hammering on how the false prophets and priests rule for their own gain. And they exploit the people. And so when you get the, the, uh, the, the validating of the ministry in the New Testament, when Paul is pressing so hard, he always reverts to, I haven't exploited you. I haven't taken anything from you. I haven't, re- I haven't abused you in any way. Can't you see the fruit? This is, you can tell truth from falsehood based on the fruit of how people relate to each other. And how the, the heart of if you actually love people, it really does express itself on if you take money from them and you design a situation and you design an infrastructure of the church to get money from people. So uh, he says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire when some receive life and others receive fire at the day of the Lord. Thus, by their fruit, 
you will recognize them. Then he doesn't change, there's no change of idea. He says, not everyone, the, referencing the false prophets, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many who say to me on that day, many, referencing the false prophets, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons and perform miracles? So he's not, he's not, there's in no way disqualifying because cessationists will take this and like twist that as though we shouldn't seek to prophesy or drive out demons or heal the sick. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, look, there's even going to be on your way to entrance into the kingdom, there's going to be false prophets that will even have the marks of an apostle or prophet. But they're false based on the way they relate to other people if they love people or if they exploit people. That's the fruit you judge men by. I mean, this is so staggering when you look at the prophetic charismatic movement today and all that's happening with all the leaders and the way they are in such staggering financial indiscretion. I mean, it boggles the mind the way they relate to the body of Christ. I don't, I'm like not going to call names, but I mean, just, just a little sense of reason and sobriety in the situation. So they, uh, didn't we prophesy in your name? I will tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And I'm going to make the argument that the house in this situation, because he brings in the storm of the Lord and the foundation in context to the false prophets who are wolves, and they will be condemned on the day of the Lord. The house he's talking about is the ministry of the leaderships of the leadership in the situation. The house isn't your own personal life that you'll give an account for on the day of the Lord, though that it could be applied in that way. But I think Matthew 7, Jesus is culminating the whole thing as a rebuke to the leadership of the house of Israel at that time. So he says, any, therefore, anyone who listens to me and builds his house on the rock, when the storm comes, he will stand in the storm of the day of the Lord. Because that's the primary analogy in Jeremiah 23 and Ezekiel 13 that he uses in reference to the false prophets which he's just addressed. Therefore, when the storm of the day of the Lord comes, the house and the the following of false prophets that disciple men unto themselves and the following of the true prophets which disciple men in fear and trembling concerning the day of the Lord, those two houses will be revealed, their foundation will be revealed on the day of the Lord when the storm hits. And therefore, the people go, oh my goodness, this is a man who teaches with authority as the Lord has sent him. And if you follow him, you'll be saved from the, from the storm that's coming. You see what I'm saying? Like the, okay, so I'm building somewhere. Bear with me. So Paul warns of the same thing in his own ministry. Leaders would come. Though they, see, though they seem truthful, their driving desire is to dominate and control people for their own wealth, glory, and renown. Thus, they cannot entrust others to God. When you serve mammon, you cannot serve God and serve money and reputation and power at the same time. You can't do it. You can't do it. Because if you serve your own wealth and, and honor and glory, you have to draw others unto yourself and and exploit others to do it you you just there's no way and then the day of the lord will expose your deeds for how you've related and so acts 20 now i know that none of you among whom and that none of you among whom i have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again therefore i declare to you today that i am innocent of the blood of all men And so he's quoting a number of passages on the blood of men like Ezekiel, you know, their bloods will be on your hands if you don't warn them about the day of the Lord. So he's, he's clearly equating the kingdom with the day of the Lord and the, and God, uh, 
executing judgment upon the wicked. So I'm innocent because I've preached to you the kingdom and the day of the Lord. And I have declared to you, I haven't hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, like he says in, uh, like he says in Acts 26. He reiterates the, uh, the same thing when he's uh, talking to, who is it, Felix or Agrippa? He says, So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and in all Judea to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent, turn to God, and prove their repentance by their deeds. This is why the Jews seized me, because, they, uh, because of the inherent uh, uh, implications and the hypocrisy. But, I, but I, have, I have had God's help, and I testify to small and great alike. I have said nothing beyond what the prophets uh, and Moses had said would happen, etc. So, so I, haven't, I haven't hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of God the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after themselves. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. And so you get, I mean, it, this is how you relate in leadership, loving people, encouraging people, and then you can't control people. You have to commit people to the grace of God and, and praying for them. Remember, I, I t- what's he say to uh, like in Romans 1, uh, always remembering, God is my witness that I, al- that I always remember you in my prayers and that this is the only way to function in leadership and ministry is that you encourage people, you love people, and then all you can do is commit them to God and trust that, they will, they, that God will establish them and lead them. I mean, it's the same with kids. And it's why you have, I mean, this, I won't go there, why PK kids turn out so jacked. But anyway, so uh, so be on your guard. I Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. Then what does he say? <laughs> I have I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. And so why, like Paul, why would you bring up this to conclude? And he says, for the Lord himself said, it's better to give than to receive. And with that, they knelt together and prayed. Why does he conclude with this? You see, the, you see the conversation and the context that this is why he says these things. The kingdom, the blood being shed, being innocent, declaring the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves in context to the day of the Lord. There's going to be wicked wolves that come in to devour you. They'll lead you not because they love you and they want you to stand before the Lord clean on that day. They want to draw you after themselves to exploit you in their greed, to use you for their own honor and fame. But I haven't related to you that way. I've never asked anything from you, any money from you. That's nuts right there. So, uh, Acts 8, Simon, the father. Oh, I got to move on. Um, Philippians 1, Romans 16. I urge you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to teaching you've learned. And why do they cause divisions? Because they have to have men following them rather than submitting and letting people follow other men. Uh Keep away from them. Such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. It is true that some preached Christ out of envy and rivalry. Envy and rivalry. 
but others out of good will. The latter do so in love, knowing that I am put here in defense of the gospel. Why is... <laughs> the former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. Why, is, why, why are they stirring up trouble against Paul? Because he's pointing out the obvious look. You're doing, you're functioning in ministry this way, and it's obviously fruit of your motive in relating to people. And so this is why he's getting persecuted. So Second uh, Timothy 3, But understand this, that in the last days there will, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, slanderous without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. And what he's saying here is not, you know, because I've heard people preach on this with some sort of, with a kind of charismatic agenda. And that's not what he's saying at all. He's referencing like Isaiah 29. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Isaiah 48, they take the name of the Lord, but not in truth or righteousness. Or like Isaiah 58, these people seem to be a people who seek after the Lord. But in the day of their fasting, it ends, they exploit their workers, and it ends in in fighting and discord. And so that's his point, is there's going to be men who have the appearance of godliness, but their entire motive is self, money, pride, arrogance to exploit people. Avoid them. Don't try to correct them. Just run away from them. And so this is... This is, I think there should be, and if anything, you take out of this class, the theology class was to establish, let's try that again. The theology class was to, oh, your mom. (laughs) One more time. There we go. The theology class was to establish orthodoxy, Right, which is right theology or right doctrine, which then in turn uh, informs orthopraxis or praxi, which is right behavior or right uh, lifestyle. Which so you have the theology and the praxis class, but the main point is behind this is what. The only thing I can figure out to call it is orthocardia, right heart and motive, in which it, the, the thing should flow because this is why it causes so much confusion and damage because it really should be that if you have a right heart, you will seek the truth and you will be led into truth and right understanding, which then will gird you in and cause you to walk out a right lifestyle. And so, but the, but the Lord is ultimately concerned with the heart and looks at the heart. So on the day of the Lord, though there might be people with broken theology and even their lifestyles are broken, like the, like the tax collector in the temple beating his breast, he will be justified on the day of the Lord because of his heart, because he's orthocardia. The opposite thing that is most disastrous is when you have like the Pharisees who they have an orthodoxy, a right theology, and they have an orthopraxy, a right uh, behavior and lifestyle with the tenth and the fasting and the praying, etc., etc. But the reality behind it, they have the appearance, but the power and the reality behind it is not true. The motive is, is wrong. And so this, when this basic equation breaks down, it causes so much damage, hurt, and confusion in the body when this isn't true and real. And so this is what Paul is saying. He's constantly trying to reinforce, listen, imitate me in, in what I teach, imitate me in the way I live, but more than imi- anything, 
imitate me in my attitude and my heart for people. Like he says in in Philippians 2 about Timothy, I've found no one like him who genuinely takes interest in the welfare of others. And so if anything, this, this year and the last two classes, my goal to produce is orthocardia. And I will, like I've just resolved in my own heart, it's the Lord's just really helped me weed out and how to judge people by their fruit and what fruit to look for and how to relate to people. Because I, I mean, any man who's newly born again, who, you know, he's, his theology is completely broken. I understand that. I came out of it. Lifestyle completely broken, has a ton of addictions from his dark past. I understand that. I, that was my story. But his heart is right. He loves God, he fears God, may not understand everything, but genuinely fears the Lord and relates to me as a fellow brother. And all he wants is that he would honor his master and he would help me along and love me so that I would stand before the Lord clean and without spot and blemish. And I can fellowship with that man, regardless of how broken his theology and understanding is, how broken his lifestyle is. I I will love that man. But you give me a man who has perfect doctrine and understanding and perfect behavior and lifestyle, yet he wants to use me as a tool for his own ministry, honor, glory, fame. I, I don't want to be anywhere near that man. And I don't want my family anywhere near that man because he'll make my children twice the son of Gehenna as he is. You see what I'm saying? Like this is how, can I go a couple minutes longer? I really want to hit the last point. So 1 Corinthians 3 and 4, this is the point of Paul where he's, you're, you're in context to the Corinthians and he's dealing with this very issue. If I pick it up next week, I lose the whole momentum. So 1 Corinthians, he starts out, he says uh, in chapter 1, My brothers, some from Cleo's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Peter, Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Christ? He said, I came to you preaching the cross and to imitate and live accordingly. And then he gets into chapter 3, so he goes through chapter 2, gets on a couple bunny trails. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly. He says, you are still worldly, so it picks up here on page 19, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Are you not acting like the rest of the world that wants to take over the world and dominate everybody else and serve themselves and have the entire world serve them? For when one says, I follow Paul, another says, I follow Paulos, are you not mere men? After all, what after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he nor the plants, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose, and each will be rewarded according to his labor. Okay, so he's using a field analogy, and the Corinthians are the plants in the field. And Paul and Apollos, one planted, the other watered, and how they, how they relate to the plants is how they'll be rewarded when the harvest comes. And so he says, he says you are, we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. And so he transitions to another analogy. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. Someone else is building on it, i.e. Apollos. But each of you should be careful how he builds. What's he building? Disciples. Okay, so he's building disciples. He says, For no one can lay any foundation than that which than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. No one so Paul comes in, he lays a foundation on the day of the Lord. Jesus is the Messiah. He's been committed judgment, and you need to repent and believe on him, and you'll be saved because he died for you. And so that foundation has been laid. Now, if anybody builds on that and producing fruit and keeping with that and walking that out, then he'll be revealed, he'll be judged accordingly. So if any man 
verse 12, builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is. Meaning he's building a house of disciples on the foundation of the day of the Lord and the revelation of the day of the Lord. And his house, whether his house is made of righteousness and fine stones or his house is made of bad motives and and following men, i.e. wood, hay, and stubble, stubble, it will be revealed and burned up on the day of the Lord. Uh his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he built, if what he has built survives, he'll receive reward. Just like in the field, the, the workers who plant and, and water, they'll receive reward. So Paul is saying, look, I laid a foundation with you. I led you to Christ. Apollo is, Apollos is supposed to be keeping you as discipling you unto Jesus. And each man will be judged according to his work. This is what I'm doing here. I'm trying to keep my hands clean so that I can present you before the Lord. And the Lord will say to all of you, well done, good and faithful servant. You served and followed me. You didn't serve and follow men. And so that's what Paul is saying. And so Paul says, uh, if it's burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. So listen, if I laid a foundation, I told you about Jesus, but all I did was disciple men after myself and get a whole group of people saying, I follow Paul, I serve Paul. And then when they stand before the Lord, all of you will be destroyed, though I will escape through the flames. What good is that? That's what he's saying. And so then he says, he says, look, where does he say? What a hair stubble. Then the next verse, he says, escaping through the flames, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple or house and that the God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy them. Do you see the context? If I create a temple and I destroy it and spoil it and create disciples of myself rather than Jesus, God will destroy me. And so he says, uh, for God's temple is sacred, meaning God is zealous. Zeal for God's house will consume him. And so God's zealous for his people. Do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he's wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool. So if anybody, any of you think you're wise and you're going like, to start a little movement and disciple men after yourself, like he's heading off people who are coming in, because that's what's happening in the Corinthian church. There's men that are rising up, creating a little cult following, getting people to follow them, saying, we're a little group following Paul or following Peter, rather than the leadership in Corinth, since they're off over in Rome or Jerusalem or whatever, rather than the leadership in Corinth saying, we're all fellow servants of the Lord and the leaders of Corinth relating to Peter and Paul the same way and, and establishing before the day of the Lord. So he's addressing the people that have come in in pride that consider themselves wise, drawing men after themselves, destroying God's temple, God's house, the Corinthians, which Paul is trying to preserve so that they'll endure the day of the Lord. See the logic? Uh, he says... Uh, as it's written, God will catch the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So, no, so then, no more boasting about men. All things are yours, whether Paul, Apollos, Cephas, the world, life, death, present, future, all are yours. Because these men are coming in to exploit you for wealth and fame. Don't, you don't relate like this because of your inheritance in the age to come. Got to keep moving. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ. And as those entrusted with the secret things, now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove, prove faithful. So he's saying, I'm going to stand before God too. And I'm hoping to endure the fire of the day of the Lord. And I want you, my house that I've built, to endure the fire with me and faithful servants of the Lord. And you relate to each other as servants of the Lord. He says, I, carry, uh, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. So he's just, 
He's backing up his own case of what he's doing. My conscience is clear. I haven't exploited you. I haven't used you. All I've done is be a servant and representative of the Lord to keep you from being thrown into the lake of fire. That's all I've done. My conscience is clear. But that doesn't make me innocent. I'm broken, and I might have made mistakes, and I might have been the one who caused you to say, I follow Paul. But I'm correcting that in this situation. Let's make that clear. You see, I mean, you see what he's saying? So, um, it's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. And so that's the whole point of what he's trying to do is establish orthocardia, right motives in the midst of the Corinthian church. Okay, so last page, the two final passages. God is zealous for his people that their hearts would be wholly his. The righteous fivefold ministry identifies with this heart and seeks to establish the church as a pure and spotless virgin on the day of the Lord, protecting her from false men who would adulterate and ruin her. So 2 Corinthians 11, I'm zealous for you because what God wants is a people to stand before him on the day of the Lord that he can say, well done, good and faithful servant. You feared me, you walked before me, you, you listened and obeyed. And so Paul is entering into that zealousness for the people. He says, I am zealous for you with a godly jealousy, or, uh, or a, other translations say a divine jealousy. I promise you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a a different gospel from the one you you accepted, you put up with it easy enough. And so this is the context where we picked up earlier is these men preach a Jesus other than Jesus Christ, the one who will judge the living and the dead. They preach, they, they come with a spirit other than the Holy Spirit producing fruit of holiness and keeping with repentance concerning that judgment in the day of the Lord. They preach a different gospel, i.e. The, the, the Gnostics, and a different glory in Paul's context. He says, you allow them to come be, uh, because... Uh, of their reputation. I don't think I'm least inferior to these super apostles. I may not be a trained speaker. And so you get an aspect, a description of those who are spoiling the bride of Christ. They're trained speakers, but I do have knowledge. We have this, we have made this perfectly clear to you in every way. Was it sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by receiving support for them after that it had been established. Okay, after he had established an atmosphere amongst the other uh, and a trust amongst the other churches, then he would receive money from them. It's not that you don't receive money from people because the ox ought to be able to eat the grain that he's treading out. You know, the, the worker ought to be compensated. But there has to be the culture and the establishing, I'm not here telling you these things to make money in the situation or to exploit you. And so that was, I preached the gospel to you free of charge. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. How intense is that? I mean, that is just so intense that he's telling these other guys who come in, and I assume they come in with signs and wonders. I assume, why else would he say, I have the marks of an apostle with signs and wonders, worked with perseverance, but this is what proves me different from them, is the issue of exploitation and money and my motive towards you. You see what I'm saying? Like how intense that is? This is why they're persecuting him and they're preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry and they desire to stir up trouble against me. <clears throat> so uh, then... We'll skip down the last one, 1 Thessalonians 2. 
For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives. Oh, Colossians 1, I just wanted to make, this is Paul's point. The driving motive of the diagram, the driving motive of Paul is that when we stand before the Lord, I can present my house and what the Lord has committed to me, that I can present my house and my people before the Lord as pure and as disciples of you, Jesus. That's the whole point. And not disciples of myself. And so that's what he's saying there. Um, uh, and he's so first Thessalonians two, for the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor do we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. Which is, he's obviously not talking into a vacuum. (laughs) So, uh, we are not looking for praise from men, nor from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her children. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For what is our hope and our joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So you get a summation of the whole purpose of the fivefold ministry is to steward and pastor the church, the flock of God, so that they can present before the Lord a pure and spotless bride that they will all receive together, well done, good and faithful servant. And so my goal in this, again, just to reiterate, is that is that this really would be, as you go out, just to highlight to you that in all the ministry you do, the number one thing that has to be established is that is right motive in the situation. And then you, you want to establish right theology. You have to. And then you have to press zealousness on right behavior and lifestyle. But if anything gets out of whack, let these things get out of whack and keep this thing right and alive. Whether it's in your family, whether it's in your business, whether it's in ministry, where, wherever it is in life, This is the equation for it going well for us when we stand before the Lord. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Lord, we just love you. Jesus, we love you. And we just say our lives are not our own and we are bought with a price. And we know our own failings and our weakness, our insecurity, our lack of belief, God. And in what is to come in the day of the Lord and it makes us walk out insecure that you're going to provide and keep us to that day and we end up relating wrongly. And so we just confess all that to you, Lord, and we ask you for mercy on us that you would turn our hearts to flesh, that you would strengthen our faith, that we truly could trust you and walk according to your spirit and relate to others in righteousness and not seek the things of this age and use people, God. We ask you, make us true inwardly and outwardly that we would not be assigned a place with the hypocrites who acknowledge you with their lips, but our hearts being far from you, who that though we seem to seek you, we exploit men and it ends in quarreling and unrighteousness. We ask you for mercy, God, that you would establish our hearts in righteousness, and that you would establish this school, God, as truly an apostolic school that would be a servant of all and that would have a apostolic lifestyle, an apostolic theology, and an apostolic heart of servitude, Jesus. We commit it before you. Amen.